The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by BJ Fogg a social scientist who is currently a research associate at Stanford University and author of the fantastic book, Tiny Habits. Now, many of you who've read on Learn will be familiar with BJ or more specifically his fog behavior model. I've had the pleasure to work and collaborate with BJ over the last number of years, but I'm not the only one who's been inspired by his work. Many of his students are founders of Instagram, people who've launched Facebook applications in the early days to build million-dollar businesses, all by internalizing the methods and models he uses to help people adapt their behavior based on challenges they want to solve or aspirations they have to improve. So on this show, we dive deep into how BJ had created this field, how he found it, discovered it, how the convergence of his humanities and scientific side brought this field to being with lots of examples of people who've worked with him, like myself, to bring these ideas to other fields, build upon them, and create more amazing experiences than we could imagine. But before we get started, it wasn't a straight line for how BJ got there. In fact, it was anything but. So I, as a good Mormon boy, trying to be a good Mormon boy, I was raised by Mormons. I went to Brigham Young University, didn't even consider anything else. And then I was quite a fish out of water there. I didn't realize how much, but I worked hard in school as part of the honors program and I did the fast forward. So I really actually did excel there. It was an environment with an honors program, thank goodness. And some of the faculty there were just terrific. So then I was like, okay, I did a whole bunch of time in school. I did a master's degree there. I was just kind of biding my time there, frankly, because I was trying not to be gay, but I was, but I thought somehow I would find the right person and marry a woman, which didn't work out. But (laughs) lesson learned. But then I was like, okay, I got a master's degree. I know what I want to study now. And so I'm going to apply to universities. And I was in the humanities. So I went from being, well, I was pre-med major, but English, and then got into linguistics and got into sociolinguistics and quantitative linguistics. So in the English department, I was very much more on the science side of things, although it wasn't housed in a department that was that. And so I thought, well, I want to go on and do, I thought, rhetoric. Rhetoric is a thing. So I told a friend of mine who had recently gone to Yale from Brigham Young, which is unusual. And he says, no, he says, yeah, apply to the best schools. Don't worry about if they have a program that matches. Just apply to the top schools. So I applied to the top schools in rhetoric and to Stanford, which does not have a rhetoric program in a PhD, a doctoral program. And so... It turns out I got admitted to the schools and to Stanford. And I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, when I got the acceptance letter, I pulled it out of the <laughs> out of the postal box at Brigham Young, opened it up, and I saw I was admitted. I literally jumped up and down. I couldn't believe it. Oh, the amazing, yeah. And it was like, wow. Well, so then I go to Stanford not realizing that I was shifting from the humanities to the social sciences, which is a whole different shift, right? I became an experimental psychologist, somebody who ran uh, true experiments in a laboratory. 
So that was a huge shift for me. And it was my friend Roger who opened the door and said, just get into the best school you can. And from there, design your own program. It was probably two yeah, amazing. And that's exactly what happened. So went to Stanford. They didn't have it. They had something that was supportive and related, but nothing that had to do with technology and behavior change. And Stanford was a great place to innovate and pull those different threads together from the psych department, communications department, design, computer science, and just bring it all together for this new thing that nobody had. I thought people are already studying this. Well, this area that I started calling persuasive computing. Yeah. And so that was a huge shift. And I did have to unlearn some things because I was going from a humanities, liberal arts perspective to a social science right. approach. And the key thing that pops out to me is the writing style. I oh, totally had to degrade my writing style. I worked my way through as an undergraduate master's student, as a professional writer, as a ghost writer. And then I go to Stanford and I first project was I looked at all the lab papers and I started re-editing and writing all the lab papers. And I made them more readable and interesting and all that. And then it's like, no, you can't do that. You can't use active voice and so on. So really it was very hard. I had to unlearn the good habits of compelling writing. So interesting. <laughs> With the, at the time, standard for what academic papers in the social sciences were supposed to look like. Well, interestingly, though, when I hear this story, it sounds that there's some natural experimenter in you, like even to so what made you have some of these confidences to switch from essentially one domain to another. And you're surrounded, it sounds like, by all these, you know, lots of different new information and interesting people who are, yet you're converging a number of ideas together to create this new field. And I think there's a real skill about recognizing these different patterns and seeing a trend and yet somehow bringing these all together to sort of create what is now at the time was the new field. You've hit on a lot of important things that I could talk about and so I probably won't answer it fully but one I was watching a tv show last night with my partner and somebody was fixing an old phone and it's like man as a kid I hacked the phone system in my bedroom. I hooked up this renegade phone and I figured out how to wire phones on the slide at Stanford when I was there. The internet, it was like Apple talk. So I snuck in one night with my partner. We drilled holes in the walls and I ran internet to my Carol and other students' Carol's Apple talk. I got in huge trouble for that later. I was like, this is stupid that we have to go to a special computer lab. I'm just going to go hack the system and bring it to our carols and everybody keep it quiet. Well, I got caught. But I guess sort of this sense of I grew up in an environment of innovation and trying new things. And it was very smiled upon to do stuff. Yeah. And even if it was a little risky, (laughs) my dad was my co-conspirator in doing some things that maybe he shouldn't have done as a very respected eye surgeon in the community. But, you know, I think he was up for the adventure and it was always about innovation and trying new stuff. So I think I grew up with that. The shift to the social sciences, to go to the first part of your question, I was just totally naive. I didn't know that's what was going to happen. I was naive. But it really fit for me because I love the math, physics, hard sciences. I love. And so then to go bring some of those things to social science, which is kind of a softer version of that, really fit well for me. And I love even my honors thesis was an empirical analysis of Huckleberry Finn. I mean, who could do anything new with Huckleberry Finn? 
I counted instances of spirituality and the supernatural in Huckleberry Finn to show that there was this increasing trend of references to the supernatural and how that mapped to Samuel Clements' life. So I was a quantitative kind of person. And so then learning how to actually do it effectively and scientifically was great. So like you say, it's not really a straight path. Anybody's journey, you kind of stumble into things and you find what works and find what doesn't. And certainly being able to explore things and measure, I love measurements, blah, blah, blah. So to design experiments and run those and get insights through doing research, love that. Okay, so that was a fit, but the whole Stanford thing was kind of a lucky accident. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, again, even to hear you say this, right? Like I've been lucky enough to train with you. I've been to your camps. I've immersed myself in a lot of the systems you, you've taught to people. And even so much of those systems, your personality is baked into them. You know, it's, mm-hmm. When you spend time with you, I think people really start to realize that. And even these notions of behavior, I think a lot of the empathy side of you and the humanity side is paired very strongly with mm-hmm. your scientific side. Bringing that convergence even to this field, I think, is very unique to both the systems you've built and you coach and you help people with. And But it's your personality is sort of baked into a lot of this stuff. It's really interesting when I hear you share these sort of origin stories of yourself. It's like how you've sort of maybe started in one area and then explored it more of a technical side and then bring these together. And, and now this is how you're coaching people to like systematically and very rigorously understand their behavior and move it in a direction that they want. So what were some of the early signals for you then as you're working the frustration lab, technology is probably even in its infancy relative to where it is today. And now you're just starting to like really dig deeper onto this notion of behavior design. Like maybe share just a little bit about how you discovered this field Maybe even share a little bit for people who might not be as familiar with it and go from there. Well, fast forward to today, the domain is called persuasive technology. And today that phrase is mostly used for negative, to describe negative uses of technology. Well, I coined the phrase, it's not what I studied and not what it meant, but words take on a life of their own. So called it persuasive computing It's and persuasive technology. It's the overlap, and this is what I was mapping out in 1993. Like, here's this world of persuasion influence. So my interest in rhetoric, my upbringing as a Mormon, I mean, Mormons are all about changing your own behavior and other people's behaviors. Right, right, right. Overlapped with technology. And I thought, well, these two circles are gonna overlap more and more, and that's what I wanna study. And it became really clear to me, there was one summer, that I just took off and I went to France. And it's like, I'm gonna learn French. I don't know where I'm going. I just picked a random spot on the map. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't yeah, speak good. any French. I didn't know anybody. I just flew to France and went to a town called Montpellier in the south of France. Turned Sounds out to a be. pretty nice town as well. <laughs> I lucked out there. And I just go there and I don't know anybody or anything and I find some housing. And so I learned French and part of it, I learned French mostly just on my own and talking to people. and. Part of it was just reading all the time. And so I would read these little books that were kind of like clip notes. And then you could get at the store there and I'd read them in French, of course. And so I would read about the the rhetoric, the sophists, Plato, Aristotle, all in French. And it was there. This would be summer of 1991 or two, where I was like, 
oh my gosh, what I'm reading about right here that I love so much. What I love so much about Aristotle is that he systematized everything. The thing that freaked me out about being an English major and doing critical theory was that there was no system. It was just like random word artistry, if you could do it. And it was like, what's the system here? So I loved Aristotle, so I read that. And I was like, this thing rhetoric is coming to computers someday. That's what I want to study. So then coming back from France, it's like, oh, I know exactly what I want to do my PhD. And it's this overlapping world of rhetoric. I didn't think of it as persuasion because I wasn't in that world of persuasion. It's rhetoric yeah, right, yeah. and technology. And that to me just seemed, of course, this is going to happen. This is really interesting. It brings together two worlds I really love. And so now I know what I want to do a doctorate in. Yeah, so interesting, yeah. And even you sort of allude to it to now, like as we sort of accelerate, like technology is on an exponential curve. And so many people who have gone to Stanford that I've spent time with here in my background of building technology products, like everyone wants to do your course, right? They want to understand how to help people perform the behaviors maybe they're trying to create for them. And as you've sort of alluded to, that has a positive and negative effect. You have people who've taken these sort of skills and tools and try to use them as extrinsic motivators. I think what's so unique about your method is much more about intrinsic motivation. So people are tapping into things that they really want to get better at. Um, And it's a deliberate choice they're making rather than the sort of carrot and stick approach of extrinsic motivators to try and drive sustainable behavior change with, which obviously I've learned from you is not a lasting and sustainable way to go where you want to go. So tell us and the listeners a little bit more about how you you started to explore this technology space and then really start to build a lot of the systems. Because I think this is the thing we really share is our love of systematization of things. Um, How did you start to formulate these patterns, right? Because you are seeing patterns. And I think what you've done in your work is really like built this great system. Yeah, well, let me add one more piece to the puzzle of the background. And to me, this feels really important. It may not seem important to others, but the piece of the puzzle that allowed me to explore and maybe not be so conventional, like I'm not a natural rebel. The thing that I think professionally, academically allowed me to explore was I knew I could always make money when I needed to make money because I was raised selling things door to door, making things, mowing lawns, running a window washing business. So I just grew up with the confidence that, yeah, I can always make money when I need it. So like, oh, I'm Mm -hmm. going to France. I'm not going to work. I'll come back. And then I started consulting and ghostwriting as an undergraduate. So I had this confidence that I'm not going to starve. So I'm going to do kind of what I think I should be doing. And I don't have to play a traditional game. I don't have to get any traditional job. I don't have to do academics in a traditional way because it's not like I'm going to starve if I don't do it that way. So I think that really freed me up to not try to break the rules or be unconventional, but to do what I thought was the best approach. And if something was just like, oh, yes, I had to change my writing style for that for a while but so in uh, people are going to be mad at me for this academics especially when you're early on in academics is about doing incremental work building tiny little innovations on top of the big theories or what your thesis advisor has done i did that a little bit but 
not really. <laughs> and I was like, no, I want to study big things and I want to do a, an experiment once a week. And my advisor was like, there's no way we can. I said, Cliff, I know how to recruit the participants. I already have the system. Bim, bim. I could be running one experiment a week. Bim, 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 bim. Because I figured out where are the pieces? How do I systematize it? And how do I run this quickly? And he totally yeah. pushed back on that. But I think it was just feeling not vulnerable to the system. And that means not vulnerable financially. And I don't know if this really helps people or not, but maybe you didn't sell oranges door to door or wash windows and create your own businesses when you were 12 and 13. But just recognize you're not going to starve. You're not going to starve. And your quality of life is not going to be radically degraded where you're suffering. And so you can take a lot more risks than you think. I think it's a very interesting insight for people, right? Like I think this entrepreneurial muscle to a certain extent that you're describing it's something that you've cultivated in yourself through your whole life, whether you were like selling lemonade on the corner when you were a kid, right through to taking some sort of bold or, or brave risks that maybe others seem as bold, but to you, they seem to make sense. Like similarly to myself, when I finished university, I knew I'd finished university. So I just packed up, went backpacking mm -hmm. around South America for six months, couldn't speak a word of Spanish, couldn't speak a word yeah. of Portuguese. And honestly, that was one of the best personal investments I've ever made in myself. Because I was outside my comfort zone, I had to rely on myself. And doing that actually gave me confidence, a bit like you're describing here, is that I can find ways to look after myself. I can survive. I can build this sort of confidence in myself that I'm a resilient individual. And whether it's a financial thing I need or maybe it's an emotional thing that I need, it just gave me this sort of inner confidence in myself that I can yeah. do stuff. I can try. I'll make mistakes, but I can respond. It's such a powerful thing to cultivate within yourself because our world is changing faster, new skills are arriving, new old skills are disappearing, the frequency seems to be faster and faster. And yet I think this internal capability in ourselves, and again, what, why I love a lot of your work as well, is our ability to continuously adapt our behavior and thinking yeah. to changing yeah. circumstances is probably the most important skill we may need, in my opinion, at least at the moment. And I think wow. what you're describing here is your own personal experience of that, but you've also built these systems to allow people to do it. Well, I love what you just said, Barry. That is right on. And I guess the flip side of confidence is fear that is suppressing, demotivating you for doing something. And there's catchphrases around fear, like, what would you do if you knew for sure you wouldn't fail and so on? And that fits along. People can hear that, but I think there's an exercise of that or a practice in what you describe as the travel where you're like, yeah, I can take care of myself. Yeah, there's going to be problems, but I'll figure it out. Can generalize then back into what you do with your career and your life. So maybe we ought to prescribe like backpack, hobo travel for every young person who hopes to become an well, innovator. Well, hopefully the more cultures they spend in, the more they might appreciate. But I think there's also, again, this does tie in, I believe, to a lot of your work, right? Where mm -hmm. this notion of small steps so people can learn quickly, learn safely, find out fast mm. what works for them or not, and build this momentum. So maybe you yeah. could share a little bit about some of your work in that space and how you sort of formulated the patterns to help people adapt their behavior. Yeah, still as a graduate student at Stanford, one of the courses I took was with this guy named David Kelly that was running this small design firm called IDO. 
So funny. So, I know. Amazing. So I take this course, and in the class were the Kemble twins, George and John Kemble. In the class, maybe we had six or seven of us. And so in that class, there was no design thinking. There was no D school at the time. This was like the beginning. And I really think David, and there were others like Bill Verplank and Terry Winograd, who were also involved, changed how I thought about design and especially prototyping and iteration. Yeah. And then at the same time, I was the social scientist, was pilot the experiment, we're gonna pilot out, we know the first one's gonna be. So I was getting both the design angle of just dive in and do it and learn, and then the experimental science angle of just boom, design the experiment, crank it out, the first one you're yeah. gonna mess up on, so just do it, learn what you need, and then do the real one. And so that, I think, really shifted my thinking around that to try to ship something perfect is a big mistake, and that you want to get as fast as you can to put something in the world and iterate as quickly as possible. And that's, I think, really helped me with what I now call behavior design, which is a collection of my models and my methods, working with David Kelly and others, but especially that idea, like you just, bam, don't overthink it. Just create something as fast as you can, put it out there. Today, I put a video out on Twitter that was not ready for prime time, but I put it up for 30 minutes to see the response and I yanked it off, even though people said, don't even move it. It's like, no, I learned what I needed to learn. And this informed my teaching later. And if we want to talk about unlearning experience at Stanford, Facebook was brand new and there was MySpace and all this is like 2006. And so Stanford is great because it's always given me the flexibility to teach whatever I want. So I make up classes. And so Facebook was pretty new and I was just part of their first F8 event. They just started platforming. I looked at platform, I was like, wow, oh my gosh, we've never had anything like this where you can mm. create an experience, software experience. You can Absolutely. put it into an existing ecosystem that already had a built-in network and you would get metrics back. They weren't instant, but at least it was daily and you could get instant qualitative feedback. And I was like, the loop is now closed for innovation. Oh, yeah. It's never been this way. So I was teaching in Terry Winograd's program in computer science at the time. I said, Terry, I want to teach a class about Facebook platform. And he's like, I don't know. And I was like, Terry, this is really important. Because at the time, it was all in the MySpace, child predator. It was like all very murky about what was going on with social networking. And I said, no, this is really important. Something new is happening here. So we dove in, and I hadn't fully formed the class. I just put it out there and said, hey, we're going to do this class on Facebook platform and join me. And oh, by the way, you're going to create these apps and your grade will depend on how your app compares to everybody else launching into the network. And students were freaking out. They're like, oh, we're competing against professionals. And it's like, I don't care. Welcome to the real world. If you don't want to be part of class, drop out. I said, <laughs> I said that. But here's what happened. And this is the unlearning part is as we started going along and Stanford only has 10 week terms, the students were supposed to put an app into the ecosystem, into the Facebook platform system. And they weren't doing it. And so they were slipping on the deadlines and saying, oh, our app's not ready yet. We need more time, more time. And then one day, it's like, nope. And I had a co-teacher, a longer story there. But I went in and we said, look, if you don't have an app shipped onto the platform by Monday, and this is probably Friday, we will dock your grade one half grade every day. Your entire quarter grade will get docked. Every day you don't ship. And so what 
Stanford students are very good at this thinking and discussing and arguing and planning and trying to be perfect. And so this was like radical, but they didn't want to lose all this, their grade. So we had 75 students in the class, so there are 25 teams. So what they typically did was they pointed to the third person on the team who was the weakest from the technology <laughs> perspective, like, Dana, you go do the app so we don't lose our grade, just get something shipped, we'll get our real awesome app, then we'll ship our real awesome app in two weeks. So it was a forcing function Absolutely. to get them to just put something out there and guess what happened? Those crazy little simple apps that they thought were throwaways, those were the things that took off. So I had been yeah. preaching simplicity. So people say, oh, BJ Pong has all these techniques. Well, the technique is simplicity. That's my technique, <laughs> simplicity. So I've been teaching simplicity, they've been reading on simplicity, and what I don't think they really internalized it until they saw it wasn't ever the complicated apps that worked. It was always these simple little pillow fights and who's hotter, and I'm gonna throw a snowball at you and you throw one at me. It was just simplicity just took off, and then fast forward 10 weeks later, it engaged over 24 million people on the Facebook platform, and some of them were making lots of money. Yeah, no, uh, it's amazing yeah. hearing stories, right? And because it's such an unlearning moment, even as you're describing this within the classes, right? Like, like I work with Fortune 500 companies that struggle to release any products, right? They're always trying to make it perfect. It always has more features to go in. They're, they're thinking big, they're building big, and they never actually deliver anything. And yet what we continuously see, especially in the product space, is the people that start small find something very niche, very specific and ship it and then start to learn and get real feedback from usage. They're the companies that actually iterate and innovate. And I think, you know, you're both describing this yeah. about how you teach people to adapt their behavior and, and to see it in a yeah. product context as well. I think it's such a great pattern for people just to There's, underline and be aware of. There's definitely a connection to tiny habits and how I help people innovate both products and in their own lives. But there's a sad story of how I learned it. Yeah. Here's a sad story. So I was doing a startup. It was to connect people emotionally through voice. Okay, this is like 2004, way ahead of time. I mean, this is what's happening now. But I was like, okay, we're going to connect people through asynchronous voice messaging and private groups. Okay, really, really simple interface and so on. And it's like, of course, it's going to work, you know. Yeah. And it didn't. But along the way, it's like, Terry can you get Larry Page to come look at this? Okay. <laughs> and of course, Google was going at the time, but Larry was right, still yeah. accessible. So I'm in my lab at Stanford and Terry's like, yeah, Larry's going to come over at five or something. So I'm sitting there outside my lab building and Terry drives up on his old 10 speed bike and parks in. And Larry looks at it and goes, that's really interesting. He says, well, what do the users say? And I said, well, we haven't shipped it yet. It's not ready to go. And he's like, it's not ready to go. I was like, no, 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 we have all this. We have to do this. It's like, no, just get it out there. No, it's not ready. No, just get it out there. No, it's not ready. You don't understand. And he went away. And we fussed around with features and all this forever. And then looking back, he was so right. So Larry gave me the right advice. I blew it. And then I learned my lesson later. The startup actually didn't work. But then when I went and saw the pattern, and then when I was with my students, I knew it was like, it's not about simplicity. It's just get it out in the world and learn real things. So I actually learned it the hard way. I learned by doing it wrong, unfortunately. Well, you know, I think 
that's often the unlearning moment, right? It's when a lot of our assumptions are essentially are invalidated. And what are we going to do differently? How are we going to respond to that situation? You know, and you obviously learned the lesson. So and I know you're still always trying to build fun, crazy startups. So that's always good. So what about now and looking forward? Like, what are some of the things that are top of mind for you? And where are you trying to take your work? What are some of the new convergence you're seeing as you look forward? Well, right in this very moment, it's critical time for behavior change. And so months ago, eight months ago, I thought my class this quarter was going to be about learning and teaching on Zoom. Why? Because I wanted to stay in our Maui home and I didn't want to go to Stanford and teach it. So I thought, well, what can I do to stay in our Maui home and not go back to Stanford and have a legitimate excuse for that? Well, I'll, we'll do something on Zoom because I, at the time, thought Zoom was really important. Yep. And then coronavirus comes along and it was like, well, then we were doing a project to help uh, climate change professionals learn how to change behavior. So I was training climate change. And I was like, this is more important than Zoom. So the class is going to be about, we're going to create a curriculum for climate change professionals. Boom, that's our class. And I had this great TA, William Shan. And so I was like, okay, I'll have to go back to Stanford because the students will want me there. I don't have any excuses. I'll go back. This is so important. We're doing this. And then coronavirus hits. And so about three weeks before the quarter starts, maybe six weeks, somewhere in between, it was like, well, all we, anybody can think about is coronavirus. So we're going to change the topic away from climate action. We'll do that later. And it's going to be behavior design for coronavirus challenges. And that's the class where the students will deliver their final project next week. So the responsibility and the opportunity, and I think the responsibility weighs on me heavier than the opportunity to use what I know about behavior change models and methods to help people get through this pandemic. And now with the social justice issues surfacing as well, the last two weeks of my class have really been kind of about that. So mm -hmm. what's interesting, it's a little bit of a burden, but it's also an opportunity, is anytime behavior change comes to the forefront or there's an acute need for behavior change, behavior design is relevant. I don't know the answers about climate change. I don't know the answers about coronavirus or racial injustice, but I do know how that there's a process in a system of designing for behavior change. So like, here's this machine, here's this system. I think of it like a machine with, you know, gears and cranks because it's a system, but then you can apply it to pretty much any challenge. And so lately there's been a lot of those. So, so these things, and then last year, the class was about helping people reduce screen time. So now we're juggling in my lab, the screen time project, the climate action project, the coronavirus challenges, and now most recently, in fact, we'll launch probably tomorrow an intervention that has to do with racial equality and privilege and things like that. So these issues keep mounting and I am just super busy. And this is really what my teaching and camp is about. And at Stanford, it's teaching others how to do this so other people can tackle these problems efficiently. Yeah, I think this is spot on, you know, like I'm definitely someone who's benefited from spending that time with you, you know, and I, I find myself continuously putting all sorts of things into the system as you've described it. I think racial injustice issues is such a classic example at the moment. I've been here myself, like reflecting on some of the small steps that I need to start mm -hmm. taking each day, right? So, and so much inspired from the time we've spent together. You know, I read one chapter from 
one book every day to understand and challenge my assumptions about white privilege and like little small changes like going through all my Twitter followers and like actually looking at like who is this person how are they really aligned do I have a broad base of diverse opinions that I'm looking at or do too many people look the same and like just making a couple of these small changes even to the feed of information that's coming into me every day and I see the impact and one of the most powerful things I think about a lot of this stuff is people do have big aspirations they would like the world to be better they'd like to have climate change solved I'm sure they'd like the racial injustice and but especially they just don't know how to start and the starting is sometimes the biggest fear. And yet I think these systems like tiny habits that you've introduced to people where you can do something just so small every day, just a tiny little bit that is tweaking your behavior or one degree, changing your direction of travel by just one degree every day. And, you know, you look back a week, two weeks, a month later, and you're a different person. So I think there's a lot to be said about this. Well, you, you're uh, hitting the nail on the head, right? right there for so many challenges slash opportunities in behavior change is what is exactly the behavior to do? So we have aspirations, of course, to spend our time well, to save the planet, to uh, help people be healthy, to give everybody a fair chance. But what is exactly those behaviors? So the tool we're launching tomorrow is it's a focus mapping tool. You know what the focus mapping is? Oh, yeah, nice, yep. And so it's a way of matching yourself with the right behaviors for you. So if you're focus mapping for reducing your stress, well, it wouldn't just tell you meditation. It would help you find out what is the best way to reduce stress for you. So this tool, and we had to define what it was going to be about, but it's going to be about how to be a better ally in this time, you know, mostly geared toward people, white privilege. How can you be a better ally? And I think I and you and many, many, many people like us want this, but what exactly do we do and that's what we want the tool to be out there so people can do the focus mapping and of the 30 or 40 different whether they're one-time behaviors or habits then they can then match themselves with two or three habits or one-time behaviors they can do so they can be better allies and that's really what we're putting out there and we'll see how that goes but that felt like the fastest most direct way that we could contribute to this crazy time and help help it's almost like a wound that we're opening and rehealing in a much healthier way and i feel like this is what we can do to help contribute to that process that's just inspiring stuff so finally then for yourself then what are you most excited about for the future what are some of the things that we should be looking out for Oh, so many things. <laughs> Certainly picking up the project this summer, so once a class wraps, about training people who are working in climate change about how behavior works and empowering them to design more effective solutions. It's, and the more time I spend in Maui, the more that becomes important because you know, being here on the island, you're so connected to nature. And I surf every day and I'm on the water and you actually see the difference. I wouldn't have believed this, but and maybe it's just all like placebo effect, but it looks like the water's clean and all that. So that working on a new engagement model, I think you saw a previous version. I've not published this, folks, but I think Barry, you've seen version. A new iteration of that that I just shared with my students yesterday for the first time ever, and it went really well. And so that and 
polishing that up and sharing it. And then more conceptual is mapping out a system for how to write behaviors over time. And I had a preliminary version of this and had to push it aside for a while, but it's, and the analogy is this, in music, there's musical notation. So if you have a song in your head, you can write it out. If you're skilled, you can read it. In chemistry, there's notation. In logic, there's notation. In math, but there's not notation for behavior, how behavior happens over time. So I think work that we did in my lab a few years ago helped lay the foundation, but this summer we're picking it up again and hopefully crossing the finish line and publishing that system. So now there's a way, wow, there's this great onboarding sequence. Boom, this is what it looks like. It's written down. Wow, there's this great sequence to get people to donate one time. There's a great sequence for helping people create healthy habits. And those can be written out and characterized in a, a systematic way. And then you can go and say, wow, we need an awesome onboarding experience. Here are three options. Just like you're looking for sheet music. Oh, boom, here's yeah. the one we're going to use. Let's try this one. Nice. Well, that sounds like pretty fun. I'm going to look forward to seeing that when it's out there. Look, it's always great to catch up with you. Uh, it's great to see you doing so well, enjoying life in Maui and helping people all over the world. I think your book's been phenomenal. I know sharing it with lots of people all the time. Uh, it's been great working and learning from you as well. So thank you for spending a bit of time with us on the show and I look forward to seeing what else you're going to do. Gary, thank you so much.